This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, December 6th, the Parent Like It's 1985 edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and I'm the father of Leo, who is four, and Eliza, who is eight. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 15 and a half, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we have a question about an overprotective daycare center and another about what to do when it's your kids who are excluding other kids from neighborhood fun times. Plus, as always, we will have triumphs and fails. We'll share recommendations. And on our Slate Plus bonus segment, mom and dad are fighting host emeritus Dan Coyce joins to share a parenting triumph. But first, it's time for triumphs and fails. Rebecca, triumph or fail? I've got a small triumph. But before I get to that, I just want to thank our own Carvel Wallace for being my personal parenting support group this weekend when I experienced something very similar to the fail he described last time. And uh, my younger son, Teddy, was just in a super teenage place and just full of drama and swirling. And I got totally sucked in. And I texted Carvel to commiserate and he texted me back. And I want to thank you for that, Carvel. Just goes to show that we can get each other through these stupid fails when they happen. Um, But on to my triumphant triumph, um, which is that this year, I think probably for the first time, all three of our kids are totally holiday gift self-reliant, where they all have are doing their own holiday shopping. They all have their own lists. They all have their own money. They all have their own debit cards. They can order things. They can buy things. And I don't have to do anything. And I'm um, hoping that I don't get the last minute week before Christmas panic thing of like, Mom, did you buy anything that we can just pretend I bought for Henry? Uh, So far, it doesn't seem like it's going that way. And that's really exciting because that's like a whole like chunk of holiday related work that is really annoying when your kids are thoughtful enough to want to get gifts for people, but incapable of actually choosing or doing any of it themselves. Like that's kind of annoying. So they seem to have it in hand. I saw a couple of wrapped gifts under the tree already, and I'm pretty excited about that part of my parenting duty being in the rearview mirror, I think. So that's my triumph for the week. Cool. Uh, I also have a holiday season triumph. I, um, I should say up front, I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm Jewish, and I love Christmas. I'm like really into Christmas. I, I, we always celebrated Christmas when I was growing up in a Jewish atheist household. I sort of think that we should just make Christmas a secular holiday and everybody should get on board with it. It's a, it's a plan that requires some compromise both from non-Christians and from practicing Christians. Uh, and, and so as a compromise that makes nobody happy, I think it's a political winner. In any case, my political agenda aside, um, we are super busy and it's the holiday season and it's really rushed and we're about to, you know, we're going to go out of town for Christmas itself. So like, should we get a Christmas tree? Are we going to get a Christmas tree? My wife really wanted a Christmas tree. I also want a Christmas tree, but 
do we have time to do it? We did. We, over the weekend, we like schlepped out and it was freezing cold and, and raining and we like got a tree. All four of us picked it out and we carried it home. And then we set it up and, and last night um, we did the, you know, they call it tree trimming. I don't know why. I always thought that referred to like cutting the branches with shears. It doesn't. It refers to putting the, the decorative ornaments on the branches of the tree, sort of hanging them from it to make it look beautiful. Um, and last night we, we did that. And, you know, there's the kids are at ages where like so much goes wrong all the time. They fight about shit all the time. First, Leo was angry because like we put on a Christmas playlist and it had like one of the Phil Spector Christmas songs. <laughs> and he was like, I see Christmas music. I don't like that. So I put on like some more traditional Christmas music. And he, I don't know why he got into it. I put, I put on, I found this on Spotify, the Bryn Terfel Christmas album. Bryn Terfel being a, a Welsh opera singer. Very nice Christmas album. Very beautifully orchestrated and arranged. Um, and so we listened to that and we hung the things. And then there were two different stars for the top of the tree. We don't have an angel. We have stars. A big one and a little one. And he wanted the little one and she wanted the big one. And who's going to put it on? Is it going to be the younger one? Why does the older one always get left out of these fun traditions? And I like managed how we were going to do the big one, but he was going to have the little star was going to be next to his bed and they were going to do, they did it in a special way where I lifted him up and he put it on and then I lifted her up and then she took it off and put it back on again. And like, just like we, we got the tree, we trimmed the tree and like everybody was happy at the end of it. And, and it, it took a little wrangling, but it was great. And I love Christmas. Hmm. Yay, Christmas. That is my friend. I actually, Gabe, if you're curious to know, I know why it's called trimming trees, or at least I think I do. Please tell my me. understanding was that back in the day in Europe, um, not everybody could afford the real plant or the Christmas tree. So they would make a like a pyramid out of wood and they would actually trim trees from outside and bring the branches in to decorate the pyramid shaped wooden structures to uh, trim the trees. That's my understanding. That's what I've always heard. And here in New Hampshire, where we're basically Christmas trees fall from the sky and like everybody sells them and everybody has them and they're probably about a tenth of the cost than they are where you live. Uh, I I heard that from an old guy selling trees. I remember looking it up and it being somewhat accurate. So I think that's what it is. You can pass that along and mansplain that to your children if you'd like. Good to know, and you bet I will. Um, <laughs> Actually. <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> Actually, it's Christmas tree month. <laughs> uh, Carvel, it's you. Triumph or fail? I'm going to go with a triumph this week uh, regarding Georgia, which is that uh, it's a little early to say this, but, I mean, if you recall at the beginning, my first, the beginning of my tenure on this show, there was a whole... Uh, situation with my housing and I lost my place because I rented out Airbnb and then Joe lost her place because gentrification and the people who owned the house decided they were going to either sell it or move in. I forget which one. And so Joe was displaced. And then even though we both have good jobs, we actually couldn't really afford housing in the area with our like salaries, which was kind of insane. But this is 2018 tech world in the Bay Area. And so Everyone has made these kind of crazy compromises. Joe has moved in with um, her boyfriend, and that seems to have worked well. Because, but that's largely because he has a rent-controlled three-bedroom um, that is protected by the lake. And then I and so and then I moved in with housemates, and that threw our schedule off. But then we, you know, it just has been 
rough. Anyway, uh, combine this to the fact that Georgia is now approaching high school. Ezra's already in his high school of choice, and he's going to stay there until he graduates uh, or ceases to go, whichever comes first. Um, and then Georgia now is wrapping up middle school, and she's going. we're facing the high school question. Where do you send your kids to high school in this big school district? Georgia has all these preferences. She, for a while, wanted to go to Berkeley High, which is the high school that, you know, the big sort of like television high school, and everyone has their feelings about Berkeley High. There's a lot of kids there. There's a lot of stuff going on at Berkeley High. And, uh, and, but George, sounds like you love Berkeley High. You just sound so <laughs> I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. And I, and it's, it's just, it's just, it's such a big school. And so the, the situation there is varied depending on a wide variety of factors. Um, and anyway, so Georgia, so for a while I wanted to go there and I was kind of like, you sure you don't want to go to some other school? Um, anyway, she then settled in a different high school in, in the Oakland school district that she actually decided that she wanted to go to. And I was like, great. Now we have to make sure that she gets in because it's, it's a slightly competitive situation. Not as bad as New York city, but definitely, you know, like I'm sure it's not like New Hampshire. And so it's definitely in the middle, but probably trending way more towards the New York city situation as far as schools go. So um, we had these lingering things. They were all hanging out. And then in one fell swoop, they all got solved. I ended up finding a place that I'm going to move into in January, which is a great place, which is an affordable rent and a rent control building where the landlord is someone I know and so on and so forth. And uh, and it's going to be super cool and I can't wait. And it is it is like just inside the line that is zoned for the school that Georgia wants to go to. Um, and so after two years of like relative discomfort and just like a lot of not knowing how things are going to work out and everyone just kind of like making the, their their best out of a difficult situation, um, it seems that th- finally uh, sort of like m- we have mana from heaven. We have a thing that has fallen from the sky through, you know, mutual friends, back channel stuff, which is the only way anyone finds a sustainable living situation in the Bay Area is you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, and that happened to me. And now I have this great place that I'm going to move into in January, fingers crossed. And it happens to be George, uh, um, zoned for Georgia's chosen high school. And I just can't believe that it's all working out. And I can't wait to see how I fuck it up somehow. Stay tuned <laughs> for my fails in January when I either forget to do the paperwork or something else happens. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Um, was she thrilled when you told her? She was thrilled when I told her. And I mean, there is a slight chance that it won't happen, but that's, I mean, we, what we were told by the school district is that there are 15, no, I think she was either 1500 or 2000 kids trying to get into 1500, trying to get into 500 freshman slots. Um, Hmm. however, priority goes to people in the zone. And then after that, it's, it's. Uh, a lottery system or there's other factors that have a whole system. I mean, you know how this works. If you live in, in New York, they have a whole system for how they define that. So we think that probably being zoned means that she'll, that she's like 90% likely to get in. If there, if yeah. for some weird way she doesn't get in, that's going to suck and we'll have to go to the second choice school and you know, everyone will survive. But, um, so I think that's all, all that's to say that her excitement was tempered because she, being a city kid, she recognized the reality of numbers in this situation. Yeah, it's not in the bag. It's yet. not in the bag yet, but the bag is definitely there. There is a bag. Yes, it's open, just, wide open bag, wide open bag, and which is everything's not in it just yet. <laughs> All right, <laughs> cool. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it. 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question that you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can give us a call, leave a message. The phone number is 424-255-7833, or you can send us an email at momanddad at slate.com. Also, you should be a member of our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. There are a ton of really interesting, smart, and nice parents there sharing their own triumphs and fails, asking for and offering advice, making recommendations, and discussing the show. Uh, Check it out. Go to Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, mom and dad are fighting host emeritus Dan Coyce will join us and share a triumph and share a fail. If you want to hear that segment and another one like it every week, you should be a member of Slate Plus. Uh, It's a great way to help support the show and you get extended ad-free versions of this and your other favorite Slate shows every week. Just go to slate.com slash momanddadplus, just $35 for your first year. Sign up for Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. Time for us to take a question from one of our listeners. This one came to us over email. You want to send us a question, momanddad at slate.com. It's being read for us by Slate Culture intern Asia Hoggett. Dear mom and dad, my son is in a daycare from 1130 to 530 p.m. after kindergarten, and there are some points that I love about it. They're very engaged with the kids. It's not a shit show where they obviously are overwhelmed. They have the kids learn and do their own science experiments, lots of creative learning and creating itself. They seem emotionally available and caring, and this caring at times seems misled. I'm constantly pulled aside to be told my kid tickles. The friend will come over and say they didn't mind, and the teacher interjects. That while playing, another kid got a scratch on the finger. That my son likes to go off and play and talk with another kid secretly not hidden off just by themselves. The daycare lead will say the kids need to keep their hands to themselves. Like period, always, whether it's nice or mean play. They don't let the kids play with their own toys or exchange toys, even when they are outside in the park. It drives me nuts how regulated it is, and unwilling to let kids explore and play as kids need to play to develop skills of self-awareness and dealing with conflict and fear. They don't even let them make snowballs because they might throw them. I want to be respectful, and I have been, and not the mom that thinks her little prince can do whatever he wants, which I'm not, but I think their principles are out of whack. I'm going to talk with them and would prefer that they open up their controls rather than take him to another daycare because so much is right here. But should I just compensate when he's with me for the risky exploratory play I think he needs, or find a daycare that has similar principles to mine. Thank you for your insights. When there's a question about a daycare and and the, the question boils down to, can I make this daycare institution change? I think the answer is almost always gonna be no, because the point of a daycare is that you leave your child there and then go away. 
And then when they're taking care of your kid, you are not there. You're probably doing your job or else you're doing some leisure activity, but you're deaf or errands, personal errands is often. Anyway, you're <laughs> definitely not there at the daycare while the stuff is going on. So if the daycare is doing something really dangerous that you're not comfortable with, then, then you know, if it's super dangerous, you should probably pull your kid out of that daycare. If, as in the case of this question, the daycare is, uh, you know, caring for your kid or the kids in, in a way that's not your preference for the way they would care for the kid, I think your best move is, is either to, like, accommodate your preferences to the daycare, like, like just get used to it, that that's what it's going to be. This place is going to be overprotective and wrapping your kids in cotton wool, and that's not great. I sort of agree, but, like, that's what it is. Or do the work of finding another daycare that works for your schedule and your budget and your location and your commute and, and make sure that they have a different aesthetic around uh, or make sure that they have a different ideology around, um, you know, being overprotective or hypervigilant uh, and move your kid there. Because I think like sitting down with the daycare proprietor and saying, you know, I've noticed that you guys are not taking enough risks and are being too careful with the kids. And I would like it if it's particularly for my kid, but maybe for all the kids, if you would just kind of back off a little and let them potentially hurt each other or do things that the daycare staff are obviously like being told not to do. Um, I, I just don't think that that is going to get you very far, really. Do you guys, am I wrong? Like, do you guys think that this that you yeah. might have success with trying to change the direction of the daycare? Nope. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think I think there's two questions here. One is like, is this ridiculous? And the second one is like, what should I do about it? And like, I this question of is it ridiculous? I think is a question that that, um, as as from what I can tell, as a regular reader of parenting questions between this show and the column. The question of like how protective should everyone be with kids around prepping them for adult issues of autonomy, safety, boundaries, et cetera, is something that clearly we are very much working out as a society and that people it's all changing. The stuff that when you think is OK isn't OK. And so now no one's sure there's not a whole lot of collective clarity on what is OK now that used to be and what isn't OK now that used to be. And so and because it's a big issue, everyone's got a lot of feelings about it. And so that's kind of that last thing is to the point of the daycare. The daycare has these things in place. No snowballs, no secrets, no touching no, of any type, no matter what. They have these things because they probably feel quite strongly about it because these things aren't just like they're not just kind of philosophical or um, theoretical ideas. They have to do in the mind of the daycare providers and kind of instructional creators, pedagogical leaders in this institution. They have to do with issues of uh, boundaries and autonomy and, and consent. And these are all things that people feel very strongly about right now. So you're probably not going to get anyone to change their mind or rather change their policies on it. There may be a teacher or two there who's like, I don't think it's a little ridiculous too, but that's neither here nor there. The point is this is going to be the policy and you can assume that it's probably going to be the policy. By all means, if you feel like everything else about this daycare is so great and you want to give a shot to having a conversation with the daycare lead about exploring some of the nuances of this, I think that's perfectly fine to have that conversation. But I don't think you should do it with the belief that, well, I'm going to go into sort of like parental crusade to change these rules because I don't think that you want 
I don't think that that's possible. I don't think that's wise. I don't think you want to be the person who changes these rules because with with any with Murphy's law says as soon as you crusade and like lead this crusade of parents to have like snowballs be allowed, then the next day a kid gets concussed because of a snowball and now everyone looks at you and is like, this is your doing. You did this. And I don't think you want to be responsible for all that. So I think that this is the way the daycare is. You just have to either accept that that's the way it is. And um, and if you can't, then you need to look for another daycare. I think it's going to be hard to be like on the weekends, we're going to rough and tumble and do all this stuff. And then when you go to daycare, you have to behave in this other way. I see that being kind of like a recipe for getting a lot of phone calls from your daycare provider about how your kid isn't quite, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're just kind of. That's a great point. Yeah, you're just going to have to deal with that a lot. And so, uh, you know, if you have one set of like behaviors that you do at home and the kids go to a place and they have to do an entirely different set of behaviors, you're just signing yourself up for a lot of headaches. So I think if it's possible for you to find another daycare, you should probably begin to look into that. Hmm. I actually have. Um, I want to go a little farther than you guys. I, I agree with both of you, of what you said. I one of the things that's interesting to me is how she characterizes this daycare. She says that they're uh, not overwhelmed. They have the kids learn, do their own science experiments, lots of creative learning and creating. I think I comfortable making a pretty strong case that the reason that they're not overwhelmed and that they can do all these things is because they have these pretty like stringent rules in place around mm. what's acceptable and what isn't because when mm. um when you when you create when you create an environment where just like we do do this and we don't do this and that's just the red line that sort of is the guiding principle of it it does open up a whole other realm of possibilities around what you can have time to do and the breath to do and the training to do um, if you're not constantly training uh, your daycare employees to uh, learn to discern between happy touching and unhappy touching. And the rule is just don't touch. And instead, let's train these people to do science experiments with the kids. I think this daycare sounds pretty freaking awesome, honestly. I think it sounds appropriate. I think it sounds reasonable. And I I have a couple follow-up questions. I'm not super comfortable um, saying this without asking them, but I'm just going to just like take a little step here and say, I wonder if the daycare employees are trying to telegraph something to you about your kid's behavior that's a little bit beyond what it is they're telling you. If you feel like you're constantly being pulled aside, my follow-up question would be, are all the parents constantly being pulled aside or do you feel like it's just you? Um, do you feel like, you know, your your kid is having a harder time fitting in than other kids? Do you feel like he's getting in trouble? And, and most important, is he telling you that he's unhappy? Because in this email... All I read is that you, mom, are unhappy um, with the situation, but I don't see anything about him feeling low self-esteem or him feeling like he's not fitting in or him feeling like he's not making friends. It just seems to be a somewhat arbitrary um, set of philosophical beliefs that aren't necessarily negatively impacting your kid, but that you have decided might somehow do so. Um, so I, I would wonder if it would be possible for you to just open up your mind a little bit to the possibility that the reason this daycare is so great is because they have drawn these red lines and that they are not in any way trying to stifle your kid's 
uh, exploration or creativity. They're actually creating opportunities for exploration and creativity. And the reason they're able to do that is because they don't let kids trade toys. They don't let kids uh, do physical play. They don't let kids go off by themselves and engage in secret conversations. There are a lot of potential perils there that they've probably faced before, and these rules were probably created for a reason. Um, And I'm guessing that a big part of that reason is that they have decided what their philosophy is and what they want their daycare to look look like. And I don't know, it seems pretty great. Um, so I'm going to go a little further than my co-host and say, I think you're overreacting. And I think you're 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 adding some uh, issues here that aren't actually necessarily here. And, you know, if you want to leave, obviously, that's your choice to do so. But I would not give the kind of feedback that you're talking about giving. I don't see how it can do anything except um, harm your relationship with the people who are charged with taking care of your kid every day. And, you know, adults have a bad habit of putting the issues they have with other adults on the kids of those adults. Um, I'm not saying this, these people would do that necessarily, but they could. And if you think that you're going to stay, I, I, I just wouldn't give that kind of feedback. I would perhaps ask some questions. I would say, hey, do you, do you know, talk to other other parents about this as often as you talk to me? Um, you know, do you think that there's something that we need to be like looking at and talking about as we go home? How can I, you know, better help uh, my son understand that these are the boundaries of your school? Like, what kind of uh, books do you guys use to read about this at your daycare? Just ask those kinds of curious questions rather than making a blanket decision about what they're doing wrong. Um, if you intend for your kid to stay there, if you decide you want to leave, you can feel free to tell them whatever you want because you're going to be gone and it won't matter. But I think you're overreacting. That's my opinion on this. Yeah. I mean, that's a way better answer than what I had. (laughs) Now that you say it all out, I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. I I also am quite persuaded by this. I think I, like, I think I got, I got slightly triggered by seeing stuff in the, in the letter about, uh, you know, they're overprotective and they don't let the kids do these very ordinary things. And I think we all have seen cases in which there are parents or daycare providers or teachers or, or situations in which kids are, are, uh, you know, overregulated and prevented from doing normal harmless things and, and so I think I, I I slightly assumed that this must, that must be the situation here but uh, I like your reading of it a lot better maybe this is just a great uh, a great daycare where they know how to how to work with the kids one of the things that I like about the school that my kids are at is that from the very early ages you could just tell that they understood like the behavior of children in large groups like they just knew how to work with that mm-hmm. and, and so what you would expect would be like oh my god if you put this many three-year-olds in a room together it's just going to be a madhouse, but it wasn't because they know how to get the three-year-olds like going along the right path. And and I didn't think of it as like, oh, they're so restricted. They have all these rules. I thought of it like they make it into like games and activities and they know how to steer them in ways that are natural for kids of that age. And uh, if this daycare is is operating in the same way, then, then maybe what seems to the mom like a set of overly stringent restrictions and regulations is actually just people who really know how to work with a large group of kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you very much for your email. Hope it works out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Time for us to take another question. Uh, This one also comes via email, also read by Asia Hoggett. Dear Mom and Dad, we live in a great suburban neighborhood where the parents and kids socialize often. It's the dream. We joke that we parent like it's 1985, meaning we try to let the kids play and resolve conflict freely. But with this many kids and families, there are sometimes hurt feelings and awkward situations. My question is, what should we do when our child doesn't want to play with certain neighborhood kids? Example, I have an eight-year-old boy. He often plays with a couple of other kids in this eight-year-old range, in particular with a nine-year-old girl across the street. My son also plays with a slightly younger set of boys around six years old. Sometimes he prefers to just play with the older kids and not the six-year-olds, particularly one set of twins, though sometimes he does play great with them. I have heard from the twins' parents casually that perhaps some of the kids in the older group are mean to their boys, that nine-year-old girl in particular, and possibly my kid. But I have also witnessed their kids being annoying, pains in the ass, excluding the even younger set, like my four-year-old. I understand why my son doesn't want to play with them sometimes. I'm having trouble balancing teaching my kids kindness and inclusion, but also respecting their play and their social activity. They should be nice and include whoever is playing, right? But also, why should I force them to play with people they don't want to play with? Sometimes he just wants to hang out with the one girl and build a fort. Is that wrong? How should I tackle this? I see similar issues arise between other iterations of kids. Appreciate any help and thanks for reading. Best, don't want my kids to be the mean kids. Uh, I can really relate to the situation having been in uh, neighborhoods and in groups of parents where they, these social dynamics ebb and flow. And it really is <laughs> what you're describing, more of an awkward social situation for the parents than it is for the kids. And the way that you've laid it out sounds super normal and supernatural. A big group of kids where the kids sometimes gravitate towards some kids and sometimes not towards other kids and sometimes seem like they're excluding younger kids when they're older, which is all so super normal. And then you contrast that with your fun driveway happy hour scene, which, by the way, sounds rad. Uh, with, you know, the other parents where you have to interact with them and all watch your kids running around together and then, you know, sort of vicariously discussing or observing or maybe even in some cases playing out these dynamics. So my advice to you would be to start there. Um, When my son Henry was in fifth or sixth grade, his best friend, Kiernan, uh, they had been best friends for years. Uh, I'm very good friends with his mom, still am to this day. But he and his best friend had like a breakup, like a boyfriend like breakup where they all of a sudden they just didn't like each other anymore. And they're both hanging out with different crowds. And uh, Henry is just saying, like, I don't even like him anymore. And at first, Karen's mom, Kara, and I were like distraught. And like we met for a drink and we we're like, what do we do? Our kids have always been so close. They don't like each other anymore. You know, Henry's being so mean. He's just saying he doesn't want to hang out with him anymore. What do we do? Um, and then we kind of realized a couple weeks into it that like there's nothing we can do. We just have to accept that this is the ebb and flow of kids. And we have to decide that there will be ebbs and flows. We can't be little social engineers for our children. And the only thing that 
we can tell our kids is don't be a dick. Just like be nice. So if you don't want to play with somebody, you don't want to hang out with someone, just say, you know, no, thanks. I already have plans or say, you know what? I'm just going to go overhead and, and play over here. You know, I'll play with you tomorrow or, you know, just come up with some compromise for yourself that just allows you to be a nice person. Like that's behavior you can instill. Uh, just the being the basic politeness, transparency, like I don't want to play with you today. There's nothing mean about that. It's true. Um, and if that becomes the norm and kids are just transparent about it and their adults aren't interfering, uh, they kind of can learn to cope with it. So where I would start would be with the parents of these twins specifically and just say, you know, hey, we're obviously entering into a phase where our kids are getting a little bit older, starting to group off. Um, I know that I talk to my son all the time about being polite, but, you know, I think that we just need to accept that, you know, just like your kids do with kids that are younger than them, sometimes they just don't want to always be together as a big group. Sometimes they are going to naturally separate into these smaller groups. And I'd hate to think that, like, that dynamic would bleed into our awesome neighborly friendship. So, you know, can we agree that this is sort of a natural part of these kids' evolution? And then when they're all, you know, teenagers and the age difference doesn't matter, as much, you know, we know they're probably going to all hang out again. Heck, that could even happen next week. You know, you don't really know. Um, so that's where I would start. I would start with a conversation with the parents. Just try to get the awkwardness out of the way so that when these things do happen, like if your kid actually is being a dick and you all see it, you can then turn to that parent and say, oh, my God, my son's being a dick today. Sorry about that. Like, I'll, I'll talk to him. And it isn't turning into a bigger, more personal issue that really isn't about you guys, but it's actually about the very normal social, social interactions of preteen kids. So that would be my advice. Start with the parents, get it all on the table, say, we'd hate to ruin this great social thing we have just because our kids aren't all playing in one clump and they're separating into four clumps and uh, just kind of gauge and see how it goes and, and go from there. Yeah, the one thing I would add is that um you have something very precious and potentially fragile here, yes. right? If you guys actually have like a neighborhood where the kids can just run around and play unsupervised and have their own relationships and form their own kid society in the way, like it says in the letter that we parent like it's 1985. I grew up that way. Certainly my kids are not growing up that way. We don't live, maybe in New Hampshire, your kids do, but we don't live in a place where like the kids have relationships with the kids who are immediately on their block. They have relationships with kids who are scattered all over the place and it requires some work to arrange the social lives of our children and and if if you are are if you and your children both are not in that situation if you get to actually have a sort of natural and organic children culture and children society um like put a bubble around that and and unless they're actually injuring one another let them do what the hell they want because if you start getting involved then the whole thing is going to be fucked and that would be such a tragedy this, uh, I mean, this is such a, I agree with that. I just think that it doesn't answer the question that is posed in the letter, which is, I mean, I, you're right that the there's all, there's always layers to all these letters, right? And so the parent is concerned. I hear about two things. One is how do I um, manage the awkward social relationship that may result as a, of the fact, from the fact that our kids aren't getting along? How do I do that in this sort of like Xanadu, this utopia of co-parenting and community and family and all that. Uh, but then there's another question that I think isn't being addressed here, which is like, how do I handle 
this idea of do my kids want to play with someone or not want to play with someone? And is it fair to let them not play with someone that they don't want to? Or should I or is it or or is it mean for them to do that? And how do we manage that? And how do we sort that out? And um, I think that the parent is sort of concerned about both of those things. I think for the first thing, it's you, you guys are I agree with you guys that like it. This is so awesome sounding that the, you don't want to mess this up. And the main way not to mess this up is probably to um, get the awkwardness out of the way by like acknowledging that this is happening and, and that it's part of a part of the natural development of kids that they will do stuff like this to each other and that we can't expect everything to go perfectly. And so hopefully this, this won't like interfere with our ability to hang out because we like hanging out. And if our kids are not quite there, that sucks, but whatever. But I think this other question of like, how do you balance on the one hand a kid's um, freedom to make their own choices about who they play with and on the other hand a kid's like the social requirement for a kid to be kind <laughs> I think how do you balance those two things out is like still the most difficult and tricky part of this the first thing that came to me is that I think it's okay to say that you're not in the mood to play with someone or to feel that way but I also think that a kid has to be aware of how that impacts someone and that that does hurt their feelings and you're not hurting their feelings because you, and you should care that you're hurting their feelings, not because they're trying to hurt you or do something bad to you because you're just, it hurts their feelings. If you say, I don't want to play with you. And so maybe just by talking clearly about that, and this is a different, I think this thing, I'm really kind of on this thing about consent today because I, maybe because of some letters that we got in Karen Feeding and because I just keep seeing it pop up. And what I see is a lot of people struggling about how to deal with consent with kids and how to like separate out what we think is a quote unquote normal kid behavior from behavior where we need to teach about consent. And that's even framed into the framing of this letter. And I think that's really interesting and important. And so what the, 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 the mitigating factor here for the writer, the letter writer is that I need to get let my kid have their own autonomy. I don't want to force them to like violate their consent about who they want to be around. And how do I do that without being rude to these other six-year-olds who are kind of just like not really being predators, but just being six-year-olds, which is totally normal. How do I balance those two things out? And I think one of the ways to talk about that is that it's important for your to teach your kids empathy by having conversations about how other people might feel. And, uh, and so... And so this topic of saying no to someone, it's fine to not want to play with someone. It's also important to put into the kid's head and to talk with them about what would it, what does it feel like when someone doesn't want to play with you? How do you feel when there's bigger kids and you want to hang out with them and you can't? Stuff like that. Ultimately, the idea is to get your older kid to recognize that it's painful for the little kids and to move accordingly. That doesn't mean playing with them every single time. It might mean saying something like, hey, I don't necessarily want to play right now, um, but we can play later because you recognize that that kid is having, having a lot of like discomfort around that. Or, hey, I'm going to go build like a fort with so-and-so right now, but do you want to play with my like Transformer action figure or whatever? Because that kid is recognizing that there's pain and discomfort around that. I think that's the thing that is sort of like the through line, like the way to manage both. This is, again, separate from like whether or not you have drinks with the mother in the driveway, because I think that's already been addressed. I just think that that we're still collectively really trying to figure out how to teach kids when to say no, how to say no, 
who to say no to and how to say no to people in a way that doesn't that isn't like mean or dismissive of those people unless it should be. And I think that's where we're really confused. And I feel that written into this letter. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? Now, I, I think you're right. And I do think that this uh, parent has a really good opportunity here because her son is in the middle. He's not the oldest and he's not the youngest. He's one of the kids right. in the middle. So it is, I think, a little easier to have that conversation when he's probably experienced exactly what it is that uh, his parents want him to keep in mind when he's, you know, rejecting (laughs) younger kids. I mean, there's also something in here, too, that's interesting. I mean, she describes, you know, sometimes seeing, you know, these other kids, these twins in particular, like being little assholes, right? Right, right. It is. It's also like completely okay and normal. And it would be weird if... Uh, You only saw other people's kids sometimes being assholes without acknowledging that sometimes your kid is also being an asshole. Like that is, I mean, it's just like there's no kid that is immune from, I mean, I'm sure there are rare ones. I'm not going to say no, but there are very few kids that are completely, uh, you know, can avoid being assholes for 100 percent of their time when they're interacting with other kids. And that's why I think it's so important to as adults to have consensus around that, like. We're all doing the best we can. We're trying to instill mm-hmm. empathy. I, I, I told my son that he knows he doesn't like it when he does this. So, you know, I'm really sorry that, you know, he's making your kids feel this way. We'll talk about it again. And, you know, if if the if we don't all acknowledge, though, as parents that, like, we're all on the level playing field here, like your kid can be an asshole too. Don't, don't say that, by the way. Don't write her in or don't tell the people that you think their kid is an asshole. But <laughs> you can probably get them there. You can probably get them to talk about it by talking about how you don't want your kid to be the mean kid. Like if you just say some of the things you wrote in this letter and this group of people while you're all having your Friday mm. happy hour, you'll probably find that it's a conversation that they want to have and that they're also struggling with. Like, how are my kids being perceived, not just by other kids, but by adults in this group that we really care about and that we want to preserve and the social dynamic that we really like? Like, I think that this group is probably ripe for this conversation. And um, I agree with everything you said, though, Carvel. I, I do think the when you do these things, think about how it makes other people feel is should and, and absolutely could be a part of any conversation where you tell kids to be honest with other kids about what you do and don't want. Yeah, I mean, all of this is about introducing your children to the problem of just how much responsibility you should take for other people's feelings, which is a problem that persists. It does not go away, it turns out. (laughs) That all of us have to negotiate on a day by day basis. and and this is an opportunity to start your kids thinking about that rich and complex topic. Um, and that means, yeah, if the kids are, are actually being mean and hurting the feelings of these younger kids, then they sh- this is an opportunity to sort of non-punitively make them aware of that. And also – um, it's it that doesn't mean that it, it that you need to then force them never to do anything that might cause hurt feelings in another child, which I know is not what Carvel was suggesting. Right. Right. It's uh I don't know. It's a confusing time. I, I, I just hear a lot of um I hear a lot of 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 just parental confusion in these letters about how and when and in which way to take responsibility for one's own feelings, for the kids' feelings, to teach kids to take responsibility or not for other feelings. I really like that framing of it, Gabriel. I think that's kind of like the recurring theme that I'm seeing. Yeah. Hard stuff. 
All right. Thanks very much for your letter. I hope it works out. I envy you your lifestyle. Um, <laughs> if you have a question that you would like us to tackle, you can email us momanddad at slate.com. <laughs> I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, it's time for the section of the show where we make recommendations to you. We call it endorsements. <laughs> Rebecca, <laughs> what would you like to recommend to the folks today? Um, I've got a podcast that I want to recommend to uh, if you have a teenager who likes listening to podcasts. I would not recommend it for uh, somebody who's younger than teens because there's some adult content. There's a little bit of sexual content, um, but it's just so joyful. And I think they will learn a lot about a period of time that occurred just before they were born. Um, and that is the podcast Headlong Surviving Y2K. It's made by uh, Dan Taberski, who made the podcast Missing Richard Simmons. And the reason I'm recommending it in particular for teenagers who love podcasts is because it's just it's beautifully made. Dan is an incredibly joyful storyteller. He weaves together a ton of different narratives in this podcast about the mysterious past that was 1999 and this panic that we all remember so clearly clearly around what Y2K would mean, not just around the computer virus, though, but around the idea of a new century and new beginnings. He weaves in a lot of politics. He weaves in a really personal story about his own coming out. I just think it's beautifully crafted. I'm really enjoying it. I recommended it to my teenagers. They both love it. So um, if you have a teenager who loves listening to podcasts and perhaps it's the kind of thing you guys can talk about over the dinner table, uh, perhaps you should both listen to Surviving Y2K. Um, the official name of the podcast is Headlong Surviving Y2K. I think that uh, your kids will really like it. But remember, teenagers only, because there is some sexual content. <gasps> no, not sex. <laughs> Which doesn't bother me, but it might bother other people when they get to that blowjob scene. I'm just saying. <laughs> it might bother your, your small children. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend, we, it's been a while since we've recommended it, anyone's recommended a stupid phone game and we do recommend a lot of screen stuff but not stupid phone games so i'm going to recommend a stupid phone game called happy glass which is a very simple goofball game where there's a little glass and it doesn't have any water in it and then it wants to get filled up with water so so far so good the plot twist is that the way that the pipes are aligned don't always fill up the glass with water and so what you have to do is engineer some way using a pencil and drawing a line that will move the glass or reroute the path of the water in such a way that the glass is filled up. And that is it. So it's sort of just like physics and engine. It's a physics game is what they call them. Has to do with like balance and fulcrums and levers and just how things go. And it's a very simple little game. And if you are on a road trip or in some sort of extreme situation where you feel like your kid, you might want your kid to have something to do over time, uh, then Happy Glass is a game I would recommend. It's probably f gonna be interesting and manageable for kids uh, five and up, six and up, somewhere around there. Uh, probably even better on iPad if you have it. Um, and I will throw in a, a bonus recommendation that my kids told me, which is that a lot of these cheap, free kid games 
are cheap free because they they run an ad after every single failed attempt to do whatever the task is. And that's very frustrating. And uh, my son and daughter both told me, Dad, you know the workaround for that. I said, what? They said, you have to turn off cellular data for the game. And hmm. then hmm. no ads come. And huh. I find that to be true unless you're on Wi-Fi. If you're on Wi-Fi, then ads <laughs> still come. So for those, you either need to turn off the Wi-Fi and turn off cellular data for just the game, and then you won't get any ads, and then you're good to go. So that's, that's genius. just one of the things that I learned. Yeah, genius. That's a genius That is a hack. great hack. Yeah. I know. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I've really learned something from that recommendation. Yes. Thank good. you. Um, I am going to recommend a children's book. This is a book that we got for Eliza when she was little. We found it at her grandparents' house when we were staying there. It had been my wife's younger sisters, and she really liked it. And then the other day, Leo pulled it off the shelves, and so we've sort of been rediscovering it. Uh, it is uh, not a, a particularly obscure book. It's called 10 Minutes Till Bedtime. It's by Peggy Rathman, who is also mm. the illustrator of um, uh, Goodnight Gorilla, yes. which I think is better known. Um it is just the perfect bedtime book. It counts down to bedtime. It's the story of a boy going to bedtime, and meanwhile, his hamster has invited all of the hamsters from outside on a tour of the boy's bedtime process. <laughs> and so there are first dozens and then hundreds of tiny hamsters in each drawing. And at first, it's like just funny to see the boy going, like brushing his teeth and putting on his PJs with all the hamsters. But then when you've read it, like, because you will wind up reading these books with a kid, uh, you know, who is three, four, five, you're going to wind up reading it over and over again. And this one gets deeper every time because you begin to notice individual hamsters from page to page. There's the hamster who always gets as high as he possibly can on the page. There's the hamster who is always kicking a sock ball at something humorous. There's a hamster who in the first panel, in the first page is there with a, a paper clip on a string and then in every picture he's doing something crazy with the paper clip on the string. Uh, you, there's like dozens of these characters. I've read it a hundred times and every time I find a new character to follow, it's super fun. Uh, and, and reading it has reminded me of the time when Eliza was little and I used to read it with her and it's also reminded me of the time when I only recommended children's books on this podcast. <laughs> so this is a wonderful throwback moment for me. Uh, the book is 10 minutes till bedtime and, and it it's, it's, I should say it's just pictures. There's almost no words. Uh, it's by Peggy Rathman. And that's our show. Coming up on our Slate Plus segment, Dan Coyce will be with us to share a triumph. Uh, if you have a question that you want us to talk about on this show and give you advice, you can call us, 424-255-7833, or alternately, you can email us at our email address, which is momanddad at slate.com. Uh, you can discuss this episode and so much more at our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. The show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.